uh, chapter 4, reading from verses 1 through to verse 22. And just to remind ourselves from last week, this is now taking place after uh, the lame man had been healed and after Peter had spoken to the crowd in Solomon's portico. And we pick it up from where they were speaking to the people. And Peter and John come in before the council. Acts chapter 4 from verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. But it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel but that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognised that they'd been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. If I say the words, the slap, my guess is all of you with access to the internet know what I'm talking about. Just a few weeks ago at the Oscar ceremony, Chris Rock, the uh, American comedian, made an offensive and an insensitive joke about Will Smith's wife and her medical condition that she suffers with. And Will Smith's response to that was to take to the stage 
and slap him for the world to see. And the fallout was Smith being banned from the Oscars for the next 10 years. Hollywood's hypocrisy in that decision is frankly nauseating to me. See, the cultural elites who run Hollywood are the same ones who are perpetrating cancel culture. Where if someone says something, or if someone posts something, or if someone tweets something that they don't like, they will end you. And they will end your reputation and your career. And so according to the cultural elites, slapping someone because of a comment you don't like is unacceptable. But decimating someone's life and career because of something they don't like is perfectly acceptable. Well, as we continue our series in the book of Acts this morning, we're going to see that council culture is actually nothing new, but is in actual fact very old. Uh, 2,000 years ago, council culture wasn't being led by cultural elites, it was instead being led by religious elites. Now, Ian reminded us of what happened in last week's passage where God used the apostle Peter to heal a lame man in Jesus' name. Peter then preached the gospel in the open air to the crowd who had naturally assembled to see the lame man stand to his feet. And this week, the religious establishment descend on Peter as he is mid-flow in his preaching of Jesus Christ. And they persecute him just as Jesus promised that they would. Uh, Do you remember in, in Luke chapter 21, Jesus warned the apostles that, quote, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prison prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity, said Jesus, to bear witness. And as Peter and John bear witness before the religious establishment, he makes the point that Jesus is the cornerstone. He was the stone that they, the builders, had rejected, but was in actual fact the chosen and precious cornerstone whom God had established. And friends, that presents us with an enormous challenge today. Because the question becomes for each of us, what will I do with Jesus? Will I discard him? Will I reject him like an unfit stone for the structure that I am building? Or will I worship him for who God has established him to be? And will I take refuge in the structure of which Jesus Christ is the cornerstone? Listen to how Jesus made this self-same challenge to the religious establishment of his day. He said, have you never read in the scriptures that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. But today needn't only be doom 
and gloom. Because in seeing how not to respond to Jesus, we can learn how to respond to Jesus. And that's my hope and prayer for you. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, that you would accept Jesus and you would treasure Jesus for who he is, the cornerstone on the structure of salvation. And that you wouldn't be crushed by Jesus, but instead you would take refuge in the kingdom of which Jesus is the cornerstone. And maybe that be true of all of us here, from the youngest to the oldest, of all of our children, of all the visitors here today, of all of the members of Hoylake Evangelical Church, accepting Christ for whom God has demonstrated him to be. Jesus is the cornerstone. And today we're going to see, number one, rejected by men, number two, savior of men, and number three, Lord of men. Number one, rejected by men. Just turn with me back to uh, verse one of Acts chapter four. Luke writes, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests, and you remember the priests were those responsible for temple duties, the offering of sacrifices and so on. And the captain of the temple, and the captain of the temple was the second in command behind the high priest. And the Sadducees came upon them. Remember the Sadducees, they were those who denied that they were a resurrection. They were wealthy aristocrats. They worked with Rome to maintain the privilege for the Jews and by keeping the Jews in order. Verse 2, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So we're talking here of potentially 10,000, 15,000 people, including the women and the children. Verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, and they were the three groups that formed the Sanhedrin. Verse 6, with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And when Peter answers that question in in the verses to follow, Peter will make the audacious claim that despite their impressive titles of priest, of captain of the temple, Sadducees, and despite their convincing reputations, and despite the vast quantities of knowledge that they'd accumulated inside their heads, they were in reality those who had rejected Jesus, the cornerstone, in order to establish a structure for themselves. The question is, why? Why would they do that? Well, Luke provides two reasons here, and when we put them together, we see what was at the heart of their rejection of Jesus. He tells us here in verse 2 that they were greatly annoyed because they, Peter and John, were teaching the people. Peter and John were stepping on their toes. Who were Peter and John? They hadn't gone through their theological education. They hadn't undertaken their ministerial training, and yet the crowd was hanging on their every word. And then Luke tells us that Peter and John were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And you remember the Sadducees were those who didn't believe that there was a resurrection from the dead. 
And what's more than that, talk of a resurrected king would garner the wrong kind of attention from Rome. The mass scale worship of 10 to 20,000 people of a king who had his boot on the neck of death would easily be viewed by Rome as the threat of a revolution, threat of a rebellion, threat of an insurrection. And why did the Sadducees care about that? The Sadducees cared about that because Rome looked to the Sadducees to keep the people in order, and the Sadducees looked to Rome to keep their prosperity and to keep their land. And so, friends, for the Sadducees, Jesus had to be rejected because he would take away what they loved the most. Jesus would have to go. The apostles would have to go. The preaching of the gospel would have to go. Miracles performed in Jesus' name would have to go because they had rejected God's cornerstone to build monuments to themselves. And friends, this is exactly what Jesus had communicated in the parable of the soils. You remember in the parable of the soils, there's a a farmer, he's scattering seed, and the various types of surfaces on which the seed falls represents the kinds of hearts that hear the gospel. And Jesus said, with regard to the surface covered in thorns, The thorns grew up and choked the seed, and it yielded no grain. They are those, Jesus said, who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. That was the religious establishment of the first century. Religion was a means to those other things, to prosperity to national peace, to their titles and reputations, and to the land. Some years ago now, I was traveling for work, and I was sat on a table with somebody who said that since the Bible's teaching on sexuality will alienate our young people, we should just wholesale reject the Bible's teaching on sexuality. And he said, if we don't do that, we are going to be shutting our doors But friends, what that is to say is if the word of God gets in the way of my church and the way of my ministry, then we must reject the word of God in order to build my kingdom. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian and yet you feel like perhaps you're right on the brink of devoting your life and committing your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, I have a word for you from this passage, and it is this. You must count the cost, and you must understand that Jesus Christ is worth every sacrifice you could ever make because he is worth it. He is worth it. He's the cornerstone, chosen and precious. You might lose friends, but I'm here today to tell you that Jesus Christ is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. You might lose money. You meet the girl of your dreams, and because you're a rocket scientist, you work out that if you just move in together, you'll have two incomes and one price of rent to pay. But friend, Jesus is the treasure 
in the field who's worth the sale of everything you have in order to get the treasure in the field because he's worth more than everything combined. And you might lose time. Who wants to give up easy like Sunday morning to come to this place to sing hymns and to hear Hugh shout his head off for 40 minutes? Who wants to do that? Answer, those who love the cornerstone more than the kingdom of self. Jesus is worth it. Infinite value, infinite worth contained in the cornerstone who is Christ the Lord. Take the world, but give me him. He's worth it all. Jesus is the cornerstone. Number one, rejected by men. Number two, savior of men. Look at verse eight. Luke writes, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. And so just as the actions of the religious establishment exposed who they really were, the miraculous healing of the lame man revealed who Jesus really was. A savior who can do for souls what he can do for knees and ankles and legs. And just as no one else can miraculously heal paralysis with a word, no one else can raise the spiritually dead with a word. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. Someone put it like this, if the name of Jesus heals, then the name of Jesus forgives sin. And he's the cornerstone of the proverbial structure on which the kingdom of salvation is built around. When I talk about taking refuge in Jesus for salvation, the story I've told so many times always barrels into my brain. And it's the story you remember of Johnstown in Pennsylvania. I remember preaching in California once and a man came up to me before the service and said, I'm from Johnstown. And Johnstown used to be a holiday destination because it was a town situated at the bottom of this stunning mountain range. Uh, but 14 miles away, high up in the mountains, was a shoddily built earthenware dam that was holding back the Canamal River, which weighed in at about 200 million tons. And those responsible for the town have been told so many times, if you don't do something about the dam, one day it's going to give way. And one day it rained. And the result was the giving way of the dam. 
And the result was 2,209 people losing their lives. But friends, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are those who by God's grace alone have taken refuge in the only structure that can keep us safe from the flood of the wrath of God against our sin. The only structure so that we can sing with Martin Luther, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. And we can sing with Stuart Townend, in Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. And so friends, think about this. Since we've been saved from the wrath of God, surely we can stand before the wrath of man. That's how Peter and John were standing. Because they had taken refuge in the only structure that can save. And so if we have been those saved from the wrath of God, then we can also, we can also stand before the wrath of men. If you were behind the wheel of an army tank, how intimidated do you think you would be of the swarm of bees outside? If you were on board a fighter jet capable of firing nuclear missiles, how afraid do you think you would be of the hailstones bouncing off the wings? If you were in a military submarine overseen by the most trustworthy of captains, how afraid would you be of the sharks outside the submarine? The fear of man is incompatible with the gospel of salvation. The lifestyle that adorns our salvation is a lifestyle of boldness because of who Jesus is. Can I say that again? The lifestyle that adorns our salvation is the lifestyle of boldness because of who Jesus is. You see, when we read in verse 13, they perceive that Peter and John were uneducated common men. That doesn't mean that Peter and John were illiterate. It means that they hadn't gone through their process of theological and ministerial training. And yet they had a boldness that could not be obtained in a classroom. A boldness that couldn't be obtained by any human means. How? Where did they get it from? Through being with Jesus and through being filled with the Holy Spirit. Friend, that must be true of us today. Can I give us this word of application? Lead by example when it comes to being with Jesus. Don't wait for someone else to do it. Don't wait for someone more qualified to do it. Lead by example when it comes to being with Jesus Christ. And friend, can I give us four practical steps for that being a reality in our life? The first is this, reject all that offends Jesus. Reject all that offends him. You cannot be close to Jesus and be close to sin at the same time. They will not coexist in one soul. I know your wife is going to look at you in a very strange way. 
when you pick up the remote control and you turn it off because the film that you're watching is getting inappropriate and you haven't done something like that in 20 years, but friend, it is never too late to lead by example. The psalmist said, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Next, delight yourself in everything that pleases him. You remember what Paul said? He said, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Next, spend meaningful time with Jesus. Get alone with Jesus and tell him all your heart. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Take up Jesus' invitation to come to me, all you who are heavy laden and weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And can I also say this? Spend meaningful time with others who spend meaningful time with Jesus. That as you gather with those who look to him with radiant faces, is it not your experience that so much of the radiance on their face begins to bounce off your face? And you come to the prayer meeting on Friday morning and you're tired, but then those who are around you are drawing near to Jesus and what happens? Well, you feel like your heart can draw near to Jesus as well. And they're, they're leading you to him. And all of the joy on their faces is now beaming off of your face. And you came into the prayer meeting tired, but you leave feeling as bold as a lion. That's my experience. Jesus is the cornerstone. Number one, rejected by men. Number two, savior of men. And lastly, Lord of men. Look at verse 15. Luke writes, But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Friends, the rule of speech in the kingdom of God is determined by the cornerstone of the kingdom of God. And when a human authority denies you the right to speak in Jesus' name, we submit to Jesus, we do not submit to them. The cornerstone of the kingdom to which we belong is the Christ, not the prime minister. And therefore, we must speak of what we have seen and what we have heard of him. 
Jesus determines the rule of speech in the kingdom of of which he is the cornerstone. Now, I am no prophet, but it looks to me that the church in the West is about to return to a state of normality. What do I mean by that? Well, for the longest time, Christianity was viewed as virtuous. It was viewed as decent. It was viewed as moral because this nation and the nations of the West were founded on Christianity and on a Christian worldview. But the reality is we are beyond all of that now. So that whereas Acts chapter 4 was a pre-Christian world, we are now living in a post-Christian world and the assumption ought to be that the persecution will be the same. Whether it's a pre-Christian world or a post-Christian world, the response to Christianity is one and the same. Friends, Christianity was birthed on the wrong side of history. We find ourselves on the wrong side of history today. And since there cannot be two lords, one must bow to the other. Either man will bow to Jesus or Jesus will bow to man. And we have read the end of the story. We know how it ends. Every knee will bow to Christ and to Christ alone. Allow me to speak then to those of you who are not yet converted to Jesus Christ. And I want to say this, you must prefer eternity to history. You must prefer eternity to history. Don't worry about being on the wrong side of history. This all got going on the wrong side of history. And yet today, Rome is dead and Jesus is alive. Rome is in a tomb and Jesus is on a throne. Don't worry about being on the wrong side of history. Worry about being on the wrong side of eternity. Friend, the reality is this. The time is fast approaching where we must each have to die. And if you have some time on your deathbed, your thoughts will be dominated by two primary thoughts. Number one, I cannot believe my life has gone by this quickly. And number two, is there anything on the other side? And I'm here to tell you today that there is. There is heaven For all who have taken refuge in the kingdom of which Jesus is the cornerstone. And there is hell for all of those who have discarded Jesus like an unfit stone. Be saved today. And to the believers can I say this. Know your history. Why do I say that? One of the reasons the governments of the world feel so free to persecute Christians is because they don't know our history. They don't know that when you persecute Christians, Christianity grows. They don't know that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. They don't know that when you squash us, you spread us. There is a reason the church in China is exploding. There is a reason the church in Iran is exploding. Again, because when you squash us, you spread us. Um, Christian believer, let me say this. If you don't know your history, you will not know how to stand in the present and you will fall in the future. But if you know the history of the church, you will stand today and you will stand tomorrow and you will be welcomed into eternity with open arms to the Jesus who is the cornerstone. Amen.
Amen. Let me pray for us, and then we'll 